0: You're listening to the CTK O'Fallon Podcast.
1: Genesis chapter number four, we finished last week, or I say we finished, we paused last week, we stopped last week at uh, Genesis chapter four, and I believe verse number nine was where we concluded our uh, our our study, and so we're looking at specifically the events of Cain and Abel, and uh, we are right in the midst of this dialogue that God is having with Cain about where his brother is. So you missed a lot of good stuff last week. Uh, go back, and you can catch these uh, on YouTube. You can also catch them on the podcast. And the intention of doing series like this is uh, sort of not only to walk through it, but I I, I wouldn't expect uh, everyone to get everything the first time, but sort of to revisit and go back. And the good news about YouTube or the podcast, when you listen to those on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, is that you can speed them up. So if I don't talk too fast, you can speed it up, and you can listen to pastors teaching in half the time. Somebody say, praise God for technology. (laughs) Amen. So this is, this is a great way. I think you should put technology to work. So we're going to go to uh, Genesis chapter number uh, four. And uh, if you will, just to set the context, Brother Ryan's going to read for us. And I want you to start at verse eight and read, if you will, verses eight and nine.
0: And Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper?
1: Okay, so we closed out last week highlighting the point of God's mercy in this dialogue. And it's an interesting thing because in verse 8, we see the unrepentance of Cain, we talked about, took him to the point to where Cain, in his unrepentant state, his, his jealousy, his hatred, he ultimately leads to murder. And then to murder, now we read here and we see that murder then leads to the audacity, this unrepentance, not rather murder, but the unrepentance in Cain's heart would take him past the point of murder and take him to the audacity of lying to the all-knowing God. And so now Cain is lying to God, which is absolutely absurd, absolutely ridiculous. And uh, but unrepentance does something to you that does not make sense. It'll put you in a in a posture. It'll put you in a path that would not make sense. And God, in His grace, in His mercy, does not just wipe Cain out, but Cain sins, a horrible death, the first murder, and God does what? God comes and speaks to him. So God does not isolate him. And we highlighted this last week. How many are thankful that the Lord still reaches for you when you make a mistake? God reaches out. And he is doing so to give Cain an opportunity to confess, to acknowledge, and to repent, which, of course, he does not do. And so now God asks a question by which God already knows the answer. Newsflash. If God ever asks you a question, it is not because he needs you to tell him, the answer. But if God is asking the question, there is something we are not getting. There is something huge that we are missing. And of course, Cain is missing this. So he asked the question, where's your brother? He said, I don't know where my brother is. And so now he has this audacity to lie against God. And then he goes on and look at what he says. He doesn't just say, I don't know. He says, Am I my brother's keeper? And in his arrogance, this is the most disrespectful response that Cain could make. Now, the interesting thing here is the word keeper. The word keeper has already appeared in this verse one time before. And that was when God was describing what, what Cain and Abel did. Cain was a tiller of the ground, and Abel was a keeper of sheep. And so God, we we, we know the rift, we know the the issue we talked about, the problem uh, uh, was really a hard issue, and so Cain now murders his brother, and God shows up and says, where is your brother? He lies and says, I don't know. And then it's as if he looks at God and says... Am I his shepherd? Am I his keeper? He uses the very thing. You see, bitterness has a way of making you tell on yourself every time. And Cain lets out the issue at hand. He can't get away from it. And so God at this point in our logic would be justified in just striking him down, but instead, read on.
0: And he said, what hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth
1: unto me from the ground. God in His grace and His mercy continues to speak even though Cain is lying To God. The point here is that God is giving him a space to confess and a space to repent. And after Cain lies to God, God then produces the evidence and says, The blood that you spilled cries out from the ground. And so here Abel is now caught in this trap. Now there's two things I want to highlight real quick and <coughs> we don't have, have time maybe to exhaust them tonight, but just to touch on them. And number one, the first thing I would ask is, am I my brother's keeper? Am I really my brother's keeper? Because this is where this issue first comes up and God doesn't seem to really answer this right now. Is it important that I understand this? Am I my brother's Keeper. Well, in a sense, I'm going to say yes, and in a sense, I'm going to say no. I'm going to say yes and no. You are your brother's keeper in this sense, in this context. And, and, and without drawing too much of a doctrine, let's say, from this passage of Scripture, let's note that when the, the reference of brother's keeper is first mentioned, it is mentioned, uh, that phrase is brought up in the most disrespectful way. And so Cain was sort of bringing this out. And the focus of the text is more Cain's attitude, audacity before God, rather than it is teaching us at this point in the text and the narrative, whether or not we are a brother's keeper. But since he asked the question, let's ask it. Are we our brother's keeper? Are we the one that has, do I have a responsibility to those that are around me? Do I have a responsibility? Well, yes and no. Yes, in the sense that we are all made in the likeness of God, and we are made in His image I can verify, validate throughout all of Scripture that you do have a responsibility not to kill your brother because we're made in his image we understand that concept and it is only through god it was only through justice and we'll we'll talk about that a little bit more later on in the scriptures only through the uh, the justice of civilization established in the law when god gives that to moses that then death was uh 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 avenged or was sentenced and that was seen as an extension of the work of god in man never was it man's choice to step out and say that i, I i'm gonna I'm justified in killing so and so? So in that sense, I, I do have a responsibility. So if I have a responsibility not to kill, I also have a responsibility to spare life to help and to aid in life. So in that sense, there is, and we could go throughout the rest of the text and look at that. But in another sense, I am not my brother's keeper because it says that we must all work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. That ultimately, the the responsibility of life is laid at my feet. My life is laid at my feet, and your life is laid at your feet. And when we stand before God, we will stand before God, or when we are judged before God, we will either stand before God or we'll be judged by being already in the church, and 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 being judged in that process but we will be judged as individuals. We will not be judged according to who we were married to or who our children are or who our parents were. We are going to stand and give an account for ourselves. And so when my brother sins, I am not held responsible for that. So, yes and no in a sense. However, we don't say well you know i can just let them be the bible does teach very plainly in the church what does it say bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of christ and if you really look at that text it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that well you're in need so so uh, uh, you know I have to carry your burdens and all that stuff. Because if you go in the next text, it says, well, everyone should bear their own burden. Uh, so, so it wasn't saying that I can throw my responsibility on you and aha, you're bound by the Word of God or the law of Christ to take care of me when I'm just lazy and I don't do anything. No, that's not what it was saying. But when it said, bear ye one another's burdens, when you look at that context, it means this, that there are going to be those in the church. He's talking in the church. There will be those who will do you wrong. And you have a responsibility to bear, to bear it. Well, we'll save that for another lesson some other time when we're more awake and more excited about that. I don't know that you ever get excited about that. But it is in Scripture. And when we fulfill the law of Christ is when we bear the wrongdoing that someone else does to us even within the church. Wow. Wow. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, I'm never justified to run my mouth, <laughs> to speak evil. Uh, I'm not killing him with my. I'm not killing them with my hands, but oh, with your tongue, you are doing a mighty job. No, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Pray for one another, rebuke one another, fellowship one another, love one another. So we do have those responsibilities. Um, So we go on now to verse 10, and he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. Now this is a theological point here that is made, and that is this, that blood speaks. The Bible says the life of the flesh is in the blood. That there is a voice, there is a the life speaks. And when that life was spilled out, There was a voice. That blood told a testimony. God literally says, I hear the voice of thy brother's blood. What was that blood crying for? That blood was crying for justification. It was crying for justice. It was crying for, in essence, if you will, a vengeance. Avenge the death. I've been wrongfully killed. And this blood cries out from the ground, avenge this wrongful death. Now, if we go to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 24 real quick, we'll look at this. Every, every measure of blood that has been uh, uh, wrongfully done uh, speaks, and Hebrews testifies to this literal fact here. Um, in the New Testament. So let's go to the book of Hebrews and verse, uh, let's see, I think it's verse 24 of chapter 12. Chapter 12 and verse 24, and he says here, speaking, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, that's a reference to the sanctification, they would use the blood of the red heifer, they would use that that speaketh better things than that of Abel. So in Hebrews here, he testifies that the blood of Abel does speak. But thank God, amen, while the blood of man dies and is crying for to be avenged, amen, that we have a mediator. The blood of Jesus Christ was shed and the blood of a spotless, perfect, atoning sacrifice does not cry for vengeance, but it cries for mercy over us. Acts tells us that He has purchased us by His blood. I'm thankful that the blood of Jesus speaks in our life. Hallelujah. So it does speak in our, it speaks over our life. That's why we use terminology that the world doesn't understand. We'll say, I plead the blood, or it's under the blood. And we talk about the blood. Isn't that pretty? That's pretty gory. That's pretty gruesome. Who else would do that? But when you come into the church and we sing about the blood, we do not think of it in gory context. We do not think of it in an ugly, horrible thing. We think of it in something beautiful. In fact, did you know, this is just a cool little thing, in the New Testament that the hill that Jesus Christ died on, what do we call that hill? Calvary, Golgotha. The Bible tells us more than, I think it's three times it mentions it as Golgotha's hill, and only once it says Calvary's hill. But when we sing about it, we always sing about Calvary's hill because Golgotha doesn't roll off the tongue as beautiful. But maybe there's a lesson in that because there is something beautiful and poetic about it. On Calvary's hill of sorrow, Sin's demands were paid. There is something beautiful about the blood of Jesus Christ that that washes us, amen, from our sin, that cleanses us from our sin. I'm thankful tonight for the blood of Jesus Christ. So that's why we, we talk about that and we celebrate that because His blood didn't cry out in more vengeful way, but His blood cried out in mercy. When the blood of Jesus Christ was shed, it was applied to the mercy seat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Praise God. Yeah. Praise God. Amen. 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 Incredible. It's Christmas time. It's an incredible thing when Mary in Luke chapter 2, I think it's, maybe it's chapter 1 where she sings what we call the Magnificent and uh, she sings this song. Or we, we say she sings this song where she praises prayer and, and, and Mary is praying, and there's a powerful point where she says, the Lord, we know what that means. The Lord, Adonai, God Almighty, has become my Savior. Yes. Perhaps at that moment she's feeling the baby kick, and she knows that the God of all eternity has become my Savior. She knew some things that this baby, this child, man was going to be the perfect spotless lamb, the sacrifice. When He was was born, He was laid in the manger. I'm getting off my notes here tonight, but it's okay. When He was born, He was laid in the manger in swaddling clothes. Those shepherds that came on the hillside, they they were not just any shepherds, but they were shepherds that were tasked with a specific service of raising the sheep that would be used for the sacrifices in the temple. And when those sheep would deliver once a year, those they, they had a small window where those shepherds would go out into the field and they would look for that perfect lamb for sacrifice, the, the perfect lamb. And when they would find those lambs, they would inspect them and look to see if there was any blemish or any spot. And if they found those lambs that were... were were perfect, that would qualify for the sacrifice, then they would take that lamb, as the custom and the tradition is told, and they would take that lamb and they would put that lamb, they would set those lambs in the manger, they would set them aside. So even in laying Jesus Christ in the manger, when those shepherds came from the hillside, notified by an angelic host and they walked in to see He who was born, Christ Messiah the King They saw him as a baby, but they knew he's in a manger. He is the one. Behold, John said, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. I think we ought to thank the Lord tonight for his sacrifice, his blessing. The blood speaks. The blood speaks. Go on, read in verse... 11 Genesis chapter 4 verse 11 let's go on and now art thou cursed from art thou
0: cursed from the earth from the earth, earth. which hath opened her mouth mm-hmm. to receive thy brother's blood from thine hand mm-hmm. okay so here we go and now
1: god is speaking and he is giving punishment and separation. We're dealing with an unrepentant Cain. I think that's key in the context that we have to hold on to. We are dealing with an unrepentant Cain. And so now God cursed uh, uh, the ground when he spoke to Adam. God cursed the serpent when he spoke to Eve. He increased her labor. But now in unrepentance. Extended multiple opportunities for confession and a change. In unrepentance, God lays a curse on Cain. You know, sometimes we don't always sing all the verses to joy to the world. I think is it joy to the world? Joy to the world. We think that's all juvial. But then you get to the one verse. What verse is it in that song where it comes to the end and it sings about the curse? Far as the curse is found. Remember that refrain at the end? Far as the curse is found. And you sort of put that in there. You think, why are we singing about this curse? Because this is what Scripture lets us know. That as long as we remain in unrepentance, there is a curse. Not just the curse of sin but there is a curse that is coming upon us for eternity. We live in this curse of sin, but there is coming a day. The blessings of the Lord are given by God freely, but they are not received freely. And there's two sides to that that coin. There is a blessing and there is a curse. And here we see God curse Cain. Go on, read on. When thou tillest the ground... When you till the ground? It shall
0: not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond
1: shalt thou be in the earth. Okay, this is very interesting because Abel was a keeper of sheep, but what was Cain? He was a tiller of the ground. And now God tells him... (laughs) the ground. He tells Adam the ground's cursed. You're going to have to till it and work it. Cain... Sets out to do what his dad does. He's tilling the ground. But in his unrepentance, God says, you're cursed. And now the ground will be absolutely unresponsive to you. Wow. Everything you try, there will be no blessing. And you will be left to live as a vagabond throughout all of the earth. And now we get to a point of hint of acknowledgement by Cain. Read verse 13. And Cain said unto the Lord,
0: my punishment is greater than I can bear. And Cain says to God,
1: my punishment is greater than I can, I can't can't live, I can't make it with this Lord. He never says, God, you're wrong. He just says, I can't do this. And it is an acknowledgement that, God, you are God. And I made a mistake. My punishment but the tragedy of sin is that sin can allow you to acknowledge its presence and still have a hold on you. Cain walks to acknowledgement, but he does not take the step of repentance. How much would God have been willing to work with him if he just would have said, I'm sorry, I'm wrong, forgive me, change me, help me, but he would not. He just says, I can't do it. Verse 14, read on. Behold, thou hast driven me out this
0: day from the face of the earth. Yes. And from thy face shall I be hid. Yes. And I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth. Yes. And it shall come to pass that everyone that findeth me shall slay me. So here he cries out and says,
1: now I am in such a state that no matter where I go throughout this earth, where I I go throughout this world, when people see me, If you are judging me this harshly, someone else is going to slay me. Why? Well, because you killed your brother, because I've done everything wrong, because I've lied to you, because I'm unrepentant, because I'm living my life. And so he cries out to God. It says, God, I can't bear it. And somebody's going to kill me. And so look at what the Lord says. And the Lord said unto him,
0: Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him
1: sevenfold. So here God says, Okay, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna hear your cry, and I'm gonna spare your life. I'll see to it that your life is spared. And God says, The Lord speaks, and the Lord communicates to all the population of the world by letting them know if you touch This man, if you kill this man, I will repay sevenfold in your life. This is from God. This is God saying this. And so God is also teaching a very powerful principle, and that is that there is wrongdoing that will take place in this life. But ultimately, vengeance is the Lord's. And this is not for you to set out and settle the score. This is for you to leave in God's hands and, and scripture does something here. What we'll read on here in verse 15, and it says, look at the last sentence of this verse, and the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. Now, I want to highlight this. This is a powerful thing because what God did, we don't, we don't, we don't know what the mark is. We don't know how it worked or how it communicated. We do know, by the way, in this time that that Cain's acknowledging, as I go about the world, people are going to slay me. We know that there is population already around the world. We We can... We can assume certain things. Remember, Scripture doesn't tell us everything there is to know, but it tells us everything we need to know. We know two things. Number one, Adam and Eve are the beginning of all people, and we know by the time we get to chapter 4 that there are enough people throughout the whole world that uh, Cain is worried that there's no place he could go, that somebody's not going to slay him. And so God puts a mark. I don't know what it was, but whatever the mark was communicated to anyone that if you kill him, you will receive punishment greater in your own life. Now, there is a horrible uh, uh, theology that was brought about by people that did not know Scripture, bad exegesis. Uh, One of them, I'm not trying to, what do they say, throw shade on anybody, but... uh, probably not, yeah, uh, Brigham Young, who's, who's a part of the, the the foundation of the Mormon church, and I don't want to offend any Mormon uh, friends that I have, but he set out that there was a bad theology that this mark was where uh, dark-skinned people came from, and then therefore they were all cursed, they were of Cain, they couldn't be saved. And that is a massive, gross misuse of scripture. There's nowhere evidence throughout all the scripture. First of all, we're going to get to chapter six where there was a flood, and they're all wiped away. So that, that doesn't really work unless you don't believe that the unless you believe that the flood was just in Noah's neighborhood. Um, <laughs> so, anyways. So be aware of dangerous doctrines that would teach things like that. And sometimes those things creep into the church. Nowhere in this verse, when you read this, let's just let Scripture speak for itself. Don't check your brain at the door. Nowhere in Scripture is it saying this. The intent of the mark that was set upon Cain was to communicate to the rest of the world that if you kill me, you're going to have a greater vengeance that comes down upon you. So this sort, of, this sort of comes out, this punishment that comes and separation that comes from God. Now, we've got six minutes, and I said I was going to go 25 minutes, but I really meant 35, so I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry that you didn't understand that tonight. I really regret that, but I want to cut off at 8 o'clock here. So because of the, because of the sake of time, I, I want to jump through some of these things here in this chapter, so read on. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord
0: and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden.
1: Okay, now this is a significant verse because it lets us know he went out from the presence of the Lord. So this is giving us a locale and a geography as well. And it's written in a way, assuming that the readers could understand, Cain goes out from the presence of the Lord. So there seems to be a locale where the presence of the Lord is. Now we know prior that it was in the Garden of Eden, but they were driven from the Garden of Eden. But there seems to be a, a sense still where there's a presence of the Lord. Perhaps this was where Cain and Abel would come to bring offerings. And there's some that would speculate for, for certain reasons. There's some that would say that maybe this was already Jerusalem in this place kind of thing here. But it does speak to us and say he goes out from the presence of the Lord. The, the the point is he is separated. He goes into Nod, which means wandering, and we know it is east of Eden. So it's east of the Garden of Eden. So it's toward the east, and here he's going to live as a wanderer. So we won't dig into that too much, but go on if you'll read in verse 17. And Cain
0: knew his wife, Yes, and she conceived and yes. bare Enoch. Mm-hmm. And he built a city. Cain builds a city. And called the name of the city after the name of his son
1: Enoch. So here we see... Uh, the beginnings or, or testi- testif- testimony of the establishing of civilizations among humanity. So we're dealing with the first people. There's thousands of people by this point already on the earth. There's, it's, it's already there. And uh, we, we've covered a lot of time. And now we're seeing some things set about and established in civilization. So read on. They built a city. and All Enoch, that entails.
0: And Enoch... And unto Enoch was born Erad, and Erad begat Mahujael, and Mahujael begat Methusael, and Methusael begat Lamech. Okay, so now there's
1: some significance in the names, and you can do a little fun study if you want on that. The uh, If you'll notice, the L, the E L, uh, is a nod to, uh, means God in the Hebrew. And so when, whenever you would put that on, sometimes the names would have meaning. So I think M- Methusael means who is God. And and that probably could have been, we could take that in a couple ways. Uh, where is God? Or sort of a, an arrogant kind of like, who is God? Kind of putting him away. But there's meanings in the name that's sort of telling a little bit more of the story. We lose some of that in our modern uh, Western society reading through of Scripture. But but we'll go on here. And Lamech took unto him
0: two wives. Mm-hmm. The name of one was Ada. And the name of the other was Zillah. Okay, so
1: here we have the first mention of polygamy in Scripture. And what we're seeing established here, remember we talked about this last week, that really what chapter 4 is doing is it's giving us a division of humanity. It's establishing not only the story of Cain and Abel, but it's also letting us know that there are men. The world sort of separates between ungodliness, those that are just in an unrepentant state continuing, and those that are repentant in the end calling on the name of the Lord, trying to find, follow after the Lord. And so the world is sort of divided into that. Of course, that's going to magnify all the way down to chapter 6 where God repents that He makes man. It's so bad, and He's going to destroy the world. But here we see now not only civilization established, Now we see the implementation of polygamy, and it comes through an ungodly lineage, population, people that are living in uh, unrepentance. You're going to see this is Lamech that does this. You're going to see his arrogance, his audacity here in in a little while, later on in the chapter. And what I want to highlight here is that the Bible never ordains polygamy, but Adam and Eve are always the archetype of what marriage is to look like. So go on, read on real quick.
0: And Ada bare Jabel. He was the father of such as dwell in
1: tents and of such as have cattle. So this mighty uh, group of, of nomads that, that are, uh, ha- have great wealth in livestock. Go on. And his
0: brother's name was Jubal. Yes. He was the father of all such as handle the harp and organ. Okay, so
1: here we have, we see the implementation of musical instruments, the first sight of that, something that's significant.
0: And Zillah, she also bare Tubalcain, an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron. Yes. And the sister of Tubalcane was Namah. So we're seeing some things establish and play out. Go on. And Lamech said unto his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice you wives of Lamech, hearken unto my speech, for I have slain a man to my wounding and a young man to my hurt. So here now Lamech,
1: this same one polygamy, uh, this man he it he sees like he's venting to his wives what he's done, and now we see another murder take place. He says, I have, and it seems by implication to be the second murder because he's going to make a nod back to what Cain does, and he says, I have slain a man to my wounding, a young man to my hurt, And then look at what he says in verse 24. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, which God says that, Lamech in his audacity steps into the role of God and says, truly Lamech, myself, seventy and sevenfold. And Lamech says, look, if you touch anything in my life, he said, I will repay you seventy-seven times. And so there's no repentance. There's no trying to make it right. There's just this uh, uh, equating themselves with God. And, and so we see humanity as humanity. Uh, I'm going to use the word evolves. This is not in the, the genetic sense, but as hum, human civilizations and lifestyles evolve and things are developed, music, cities, uh, uh, ironworks and brassworks and cattle and all this stuff, as this uh, accelerates and progresses, at the same time, humanity retains this ability to get more and more ungodly and separate from the Lord. And we'll close at that. You can stand together with me. And so we're seeing this dividing of peoples. And it's going to come to the end in verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son, and called his name Seth. For God, she said, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. And to Seth and to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. And it says, Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. And there's this voice that's crying out, we do not want this wickedness. We're calling out to God. We're asking God for His protection. We're asking God for His hand. And now we're going to see everything turn and we're going to see God focus in on one group in Seth and follow the narrative through Seth's lineage down through Noah and on through Abraham and God's dealing with those that will respond to him and speak to him. I'm thankful for God's grace and mercy tonight. Amen. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth in your word. And I pray, God, that we would not just be hearers, but that we would be doers also. I pray that You would bless everyone that has been here tonight, everyone that's opened their heart and their mind to Your Word. I pray, God, that in spite of my ability to communicate, I pray that Your Word would lead us. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, in Jesus' name, amen. Clap your hands unto the Lord tonight. Thank you for being in the house of God. Amen. God is good. Thank you for joining us online. We're praying for all those... Amen. If you need anything, let us know. Amen. God bless. We look forward to seeing everyone Sunday. In Jesus' name, Lord willing. You're dismissed.